Hello and welcome back to the Miss Amanda Chen Show. We're now in season two of the 100 Mass Men series where I anonymously interview different men from all walks of life about what masculinity means to them and how that affects their self-worth. This week, I spoke with a male coach who runs men's groups and was curious to learn more about a space dedicated to male vulnerability. Mass man number 29 is the masked traveler. He's been all around the world, but most consistently in Bali and Korea, where he was named mayor of the town in a space full of wanderers. Here we speak about gender roles and open up an interesting idea that the fear of being weak is probably more commonly felt than the desire to be strong. We get into a very interesting conversation about power and the idea of men being the ones in charge, but for the purpose of making women happy. Let's get into it. I hope you enjoy the show. I think that everyone's responsible for their own lives. So what that means to me is it starts with me, right? Anything other than that is I'm trying to make someone else responsible. And so the only, the only way that I'm able to practically stand in, I'm responsible for my own experience as opposed to, well, they should be responsible for their own experience. Doesn't, doesn't work. Like pointing at someone else and being like, why aren't they being responsible? I, I've tried that in the past and it's never, it's never worked for me. And, um, and so acting like I'm the one who I have influence over and that I'm going to set a standard and I can hold boundaries for like wanting other people to, to hold their end. Um, but I can do that with, with grace as much as possible or attempt to, mm. um, and, and again, start with myself. I think that's, very interesting. I have been spending a lot of time with my nephews and they're three mm. and five and they argue a lot with, you know, TV time or play time with certain toys. And they would always talk about what's fair. And the older sure. one always has to be like, well, I'm going to be the older brother and I got to make these decisions. And then he would get really upset about fairness of like, oh, well, the younger brother didn't do the same thing and he got away with it. You know, how come I'm being punished for it? And like you said, like, everyone needs to be responsible for themselves. Like, you know, I don't want to be responsible for you, but I think on the female perspective, like with women, we've always had to take responsibility for other people. We've kind of inherited that concept of being the nurturing one of the one that is a mother figure that has everything in her purse, you know, has the clean X in case someone gets a runny nose, you know, has this like extra preparedness. And I would realize that I end up doing things by default for other people without them asking. And sure. I feel like that's a very, I mean, millennial female trait mm. because when you've said it in the sense of like, well, I don't want to do that person's responsibility. <laughs> like, do you think that, um, Wait, did, I, did I say I didn't want to take someone's responsibility? Well, in, um, well, yeah, you kind of said like it's, they should be responsible for themselves. Right. So, you know, you wouldn't naturally go and tell them that they need to be responsible for themselves. You know, I think that discussion or that need to say, Hey, you need to be responsible for yourself. Like you didn't really want to have that. You didn't really want to say that you wanted to do that. Right. Well, I feel like I can hold that space, but there, there's different ways to hold that space. I think what I, I wanted to say is we don't want to have that conversation where we ask the other person to have responsibility for themselves. What we do instead is either complain about the other person not taking responsibility, which is already punishing them before they have the chance to actually take responsibility for themselves, or we remove that control completely and just do it for them. 
right? So on the female side, I think we just do that automatically. We don't even give them a chance. And then on the male side, I think it's just blame, you know, or, or some kind of resentment. Do you feel like that is true? Well, it, <laughs> first of all, it's, it's interesting because um, in the men's group that I, I facilitate and have for, for years now, one of the rules that we have is to speak from the eye. Right? And it, it's not a very common thing. I mean, I think it's common inside of like men's work, but, um, but yeah. So, and you're like, we feel this is like, do we, I don't know that I do. Hmm. And it is, it is interesting. And, and it's a, it's a common conversational trope uh, to sort of generalize and, and it brings people in, but I think it's, it's important. And I, I'm just watching my, my own reaction to like, well, I don't know that I do that. And you're not speaking for me there, but I digress. The, I had this experience where I was saying something like, well, as a six foot six, 220 pound male, I have this experience. And a friend of mine was like, oh, well, I always say it that as a woman, I have this experience. And we're talking about the same thing essentially. Mm. And, and so it's, it's interesting because I think that a lot of men feel like they're holding the world together, like Atlas holding the world up. Okay. And, and if, if they weren't, hmm, like Brene Brown talks about this. Uh, she said that this this guy came to her during one of her book signings and said, hey, where's your work on men? And she said, well, at that point, she wasn't writing about men. Mm-hmm. He said, well, that's convenient. And she felt a little stung by by that. And he, and he said, well, what, those, those three women over there, it's my wife, my two daughters, and they love me, but they'd rather see me die on my white horse than ever fall off. And I think a lot of men feel that way. And again, facilitating men's work. Like I remember one time early on with, with this group, so like a couple of years ago, um, I asked the people that were in attendance, it was like 20 or 30 guys, what do they do if they're feeling down? And all of them were like, oh, I go for a walk. I listen to a podcast, I work out. And I, at the end I said, well, none of you said that you reach out to your partners. And they started laughing. Like the, the, the idea of relying on, on uh, their partners for support was even a thing. And I think a lot of men feel like they won't be loved anymore. So as much as women often will say, I really want a man who's vulnerable and, and expresses his feelings. A lot of men think as soon as I do that, all polarity and attraction is gone. And yeah. And then at the same time, I think a lot of women totally feel like they have to hold it all together for everyone. And then attribute it to sort of the, the mother side and, just like you said, having a a giant bag at all times full of whatever might come up, right? Now I do that and people are like, oh, wow, were you a a boy scout? And I never was, but I tend to have a bag full of snacks and extra layers and cleaning supplies and extra toothbrush and metal straws and like a Swiss army knife sort of thing, like multi-tool, like whatever comes up, I generally can can handle it and have this bag full of stuff. But it's interesting because it's not a purse, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's not treated the same way. Yeah, because as soon as you said that, I thought, well, you travel all the time. It makes sense that you're prepared for anything. I would never think it's because you're the responsible type or the nurturing type, the you know mom in the group. Because yeah. it's not a purse. Because yeah. like almost every woman that I've dated, I've been a better cook. They won't think ahead. And this isn't all women, just maybe the women I've dated. And they won't think ahead to like, oh, we're going for a walk and it might get colder. I'll bring an extra layer. So I generally have brought like an extra sweater or I made this really fun sort of travel towel thing 
that uh, that acts as like a, a blanket or like I wear it as a scarf because I'm large, but it can be a shawl or whatever. And so I'll bring these things so that um, like in addition to stuff for me so that later in the evening when it gets cold, they're okay. And I, I find in my work as, as a coach, I work a lot with people who are strong and used to being the strong one all of the time. And they don't have to be the strong one with me. They get to relax. But what I found is that a lot of men think that they have to be strong all of the time. Otherwise, the world will fall apart. And a lot of women think that they have to be strong all of the time. Otherwise, the world will fall apart. And they just tell slightly different narratives around it. But yeah, it's like until everyone else is okay, they can't tend to themselves. And so especially when I'm working with women who are mothers or have motherly tendencies, I have to keep letting them know. Like I, I go over safety before I work with anyone and different types of safety. And one of them, I didn't see anyone else talking about, but I needed, which was I needed to know that the facilitator was okay before I could relax, right? So even if I was at some group thing, like Bali is full of different breathwork workshops or whatever, and people might be breathing really heavy and eventually emotions come out and some people would start screaming and pounding the floor and crying and like gestalting all over the place. And I would have admiration say, oh, wow, good for them. But if I did that, the, the narrative went, everyone would freak out and I would blame my size, my voice, right? That would be overwhelming. But then I've spoken to women who have the same fear for different reasons. And so I think a lot of the world is, um, so yeah, so when I said it's like the role of a man or whatever, but it, like I think it's the masculine inside of all of us or the yin or the, the yang, I mean, of, of wanting everyone to be okay. And I don't know, and it might also be attached to my view that like I've got a bit of a pet peeve that often masculine tenants, like traits tend to be things like anger and violence and and people talk about the feminists like caring and love and like there's a lot of nasty women out there who aren't caring and loving or empathetic this narrative that women just carry empathy because they have a vagina isn't accurate <laughs> and and the idea that men are just inherently violent isn't accurate it's a role that we've had to play and it's it's in our makeup to a certain extent but husbandry is the idea of caring for something to, to grow and thrive, right? And I think that that's the role of a husband is is to, yeah, to care and nurture. Hmm. So I think that uh, there are a lot of masculine qualities that maybe aren't always attributed to masculine, but how I talk about them is, um, yeah, I think it's strong and noble to to care and to feel and have empathy. And So what is conventionally what men would consider being strong or what does strength mean to men in general from your experience working with men hmm. and how has that different from your personal definition of strength? Cause I know you were saying, you know, it's about wanting the world to be okay. You know, so that's if, that's, it, yeah. if that's strength in a protective sense or a I think for a lot sense, of people it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, hmm. It's interesting. I did a women's studies 101 class at university and I was like one of three men in the class of like over a hundred. <laughs> and people would ask me like, well, as a man, I was like, well, I can't speak for all men, right? I can speak for myself. And, and it's such a diverse group, man. <laughs> um, 
just like women are a diverse group. And what what I feel is that and there's a book called King, Warrior, Magician, Lover that talks about the archetypes of the mature masculine. And those are the archetypes, those four in the title, are the mature man in his full expression, right? So the healthiest version, the King, Warrior, Magician, Lover. So power is a mixture of all of those inside of one body. So the king has the vision. The warrior holds that vision, right? And make sure that it, it can be acted upon. The, the magician is the creative it's it's the one who finds solutions to whatever problem might come up the inventor and the lover is the one who rejoices in the whole process right and so i think that a powerful man is a man who's able to have a vision hold it find creative ways of of bringing it to life and is loving uh, while he's doing it and what is that in contrast to what men that have come to you for advice? Like what is their traditional concept of strength? Well, I think hmm, I think the, the traditional thing that a lot of men are dealing with, but again, they, they melt into the space that I hold pretty quickly, but a lot of men are afraid and it comes out as anger. It comes out as like a roughness, but the same way that a, a, like a dog who starts barking sounds ferocious often they're usually just scared <laughs> and there's an advantage to being my size, but being as I am that comes across as pretty soothing because I, I don't occur as confrontational to a lot of people, but I do not occur as a pushover either. And so that this mix of strong, stable, but soothing allows a lot of people to, to relax. And um, yeah, but yeah, I think a lot of, a lot of what the world is dealing with, and again, um, we spoke before, and a lot of what you're trying to talk to is more of the traits that uh, come across as toxic masculinity. Would that be accurate? Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of that, I think, is fear-based and trying to prove something to someone. And my experience is that from, from a space of trying to prove oneself, it's almost unattainable. And, and so there's this constant fear, like all this ridiculousness of like, are you alpha or beta? And, and like women want alpha men and like maybe, but again, not all women are the same, right? And, and I'm speaking from a very heteronormative direction. So forgive me if that doesn't work for you, but the, yeah, I just think it's really fear-based. And so it comes out as aggressive and then gets mislabeled as masculine. Whereas I see it as wounded, right? I think that from a young age, my father was in a men's group and I moved in with him my last year of high school. And I, I started reading all the books that his men's group had and really seeing a beautiful shift in my dad from being part of that group. And so early on in my life, that felt like a, a safe haven energetically. And one of the things that I really loved about it was all of the books were very creative in the sense that Men have been like this in the past, but what are we going to be moving forward? There was a lot of uh, emphasis on a strong man is a man who, again, heteronormative, takes care of his woman and loves his woman and honors, right? So you don't get to call yourself a strong man if you're being abusive to women or children, right? Like that's just like, 
I don't mean to laugh at abuse, but I'm laughing at the concept that someone would see that as strength. So yeah, for me, toxic masculinity and, and even the reaction that people have to that for me is like, yeah, sure. Like a lot of men are behaving really badly in the world. It doesn't offend me that people are, are, are saying toxic masculinity where a lot of people are getting messed up is they hear masculinity is toxic, which is a completely different thing, right? So toxic masculinity is a toxic form of something that in itself is a healthy, noble, wonderful state that the world benefits from. And so, yeah, a lot of, a lot of uh, men who are struggling are in some of the underdeveloped or shadow sides of that king, warrior, magician, lover archetype is, is one way of looking at it. And, and so, yeah, so what I try to do as much as possible is stand for people to step into those archetypes in their fullness and clear whatever needs to be cleared uh, so that they can do so. I think you're right. Like in the concept of toxic anything, there is a misconception that there's something wrong with you or that, you know, you're a disease <laughs> in some sure. aspect versus there's just a miscommunication or there's just something that's not that's something that needs to be worked on basically to kind of unpack a little bit more because I think a mix between doing and being yeah like you're doing a bad thing isn't the same as you're bad exactly yeah Yeah. and I think I mean I definitely was very toxic in my approach to feminism for a while because Hmm. I would victimize myself I wouldn't allow for other voices besides my own or other voices that I felt safe in, but then I wasn't making a safe space for others. You know, I was just here trying to do one thing and ignoring everything else. So if you think of toxic masculinity, it is more about the fear of what that means. Like, am I one of them? You know, am I part of this toxic group? And nobody wants to admit that. And I think there's all that guilt that goes along with that, that, um, you'll have to kind of admit that there are some toxic bits of you and that's how you can get rid of them. There's a lot of power when you say like, nobody wants to admit it. Again, I had that sort of like, well, maybe don't speak for me. Like, but I get what you're saying, but I've found a lot of value in dropping in and saying, yeah, yeah, there's parts of me that are beastly and monstrous. And I'm choosing not to go into that. Ignoring that those exist inside of me, I think would be dangerous. That's what I mean. Like saying that you're, you're perfect, that there's nothing wrong with you, you know, and, and, and I mean, in some sense, yes, nothing is wrong with you. It's just more just how (laughs) how you're going to perfect and complete. Yeah. However you look at it, but by removing yourself from the truth that of course there's monsters and demons and everybody, and it's about figuring out how to deal with that in your own terms rather than just pointing them out or ignoring them or pretending that they never existed. And I think the movement with the Me Too movement and the attack that came to a whole gender Mm. revealed the fear among men in the sense of like, I don't want to admit that I was one of these toxic men or I, I was one of these men that did these abusive things. But if you think contextually back in the day, there was no conversation about consent there was no safe place for women to come to to talk about these things and that's why the whole conversation occurred so many years later 
after the fact when they finally had enough access and there was enough demand and appreciation for that conversation to arise. You know, it's funny. Like I, I sort of agreed with you there. I was like, yeah, no, there was no conversation, but yeah. I mainly grew up with my mother who's a very powerful woman. <laughs> and, and it was interesting because it took me years to realize that I had internalized that women get to have consent. Yes or no. Yes. Even my dad would say things like as a man, you get to present and women get to choose. And, and all, all a man can do is, is present. It's like, yeah, let's say you want to be in a relationship. It's like, I'm available and would like to date you, but the woman gets to choose. But I realized that I, I stretched that to a lot of my life and didn't realize that I got to say no too. And, and so there, there were some instances where um, like gender flipped, I was putting up with things that if any female friend of mine was go were going through, I would just think we're abusive, but because it was like some small, pretty girl doing it to this gigantic man, somehow it was okay. And, and so it took me a, a while to tap into actually, like I started uh, projecting out this image of an inner woman inside of me and realizing I wasn't treating her like I would treat a woman external to myself and in forming a connection to that relationship, it sounds possibly a little weird, but I started treating myself better. And from that, uh, I think other people started getting treated better around me, but, but mainly um, I raised the standard for myself to at least the standard that would happen if, if there was uh, a woman around me physically. But um, yeah, there's just so many different directions to go, to go into this. So I think that's interesting that you were kind of raised with the understanding that men present and then women say yes or no. And they're the ones always presenting the option and then the woman receives it and either decides yes or no. When I was brought up and I'm brought up in a, you know, in a Chinese household and women were not allowed to say no, you know, mm. it's this, whatever the man says goes. And I was learned that if a, if it's woman to woman, then it's equal, you know, it's peer to peer. We can decide amongst ourselves on a decision, but if there's a man in the room, he ultimately has final say. So if we're all deciding on, you know, what to eat for dinner, it doesn't matter what the women are discussing. The ultimate decision ends up being in the man's hands. So with that flip side, I've never been able to say no in, in that context. So whenever I would receive the choice, I didn't ever say no. So when we go back to that conversation of consent and like back in the day when just a lot of things weren't discussed, I didn't feel like I had the freedom to say no for just completely different contextual reasons. And I think it's very difficult to say with people when they say, oh, you can always say no. But technically you do have the freedom to say yes or no, but I think- so I can physically make that sound yeah, no, but yeah. I can't always say no. Yeah, yeah. so there's so many different layers and I'm really curious to hear if this is a cultural phenomenon in terms of the ability to say no more than it is a gender phenomenon because both of us just had examples of when saying no was not available for us growing up. I mean, I think it's a mixture of both. I don't think it's, it's as simple to say it's one or the other. Um, I think definitely a lot of cultures have norms because I came from the product of two black sheep who were sort of the odd ones in their family, like loved, but sort of like, okay, that's just how they are. And the rest of the family was more homogenous. I, I, I don't know that I can, I can speak as a, a norm. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's fascinating. Like I've, I've had situations where 
like I asked a woman one time what she wanted to eat and she like nearly melted down started like screaming and like and then ended up crying in my arms and I was just kind of there while it all happened <laughs> and I was just trying to be like hey, um, like how do you want to eat like what do you want to eat we're gonna spend a little bit of time together and and um they wanted to get food so I was like great let's as we make a list what do you want to eat <laughs> <laughs> and it seemed pretty uh yeah, low stakes and and light and kind <laughs> for my side, and uh, it occurred as like this heavy, heavy thing for them. Um, and yeah, it's it's tough because again, whether it's male or female, I think almost hurts the conversation. I think that it's important to say that a lot of women didn't feel like they could say no for a long time, and that it's important for women to be able to say no. I think that's an important conversation to have. But I think it's also important that a lot, to, to understand that a lot of people felt like they couldn't say no. And that leads into some of the, the weird dominance that happens from multiple sides. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because it's, it's easy to, to look and say, oh, the world's been patriotic. Or, uh, not patriotic. What's the word I'm looking for? Patriarchal for so long. Men were in charge. But yeah. honestly, when you look at how the world was set up, a lot of wars were done in the name of keeping women happy. Often women might have been seen as in charge of the household, but had influence. And I'm not saying that it was right or good, but I also don't think that it's um, it does a lot of service to to say that it's it's all one side or the other. And I think women have are and have been a lot more powerful than sort of speak into. And so, yeah, I don't know that it's it's a gender thing or a cultural thing. I think it's a mixture. But what I don't hear done enough is a conversation around how do we want things to be and not just what don't we want anymore, but what do we want? And, the, and that it's a fine line, but I think it makes such a difference. Like what do we want versus saying, oh, I don't want this anymore. Yeah, I don't know if I'm, I'm just going off on a, on a bit of a rambly rant there, but. So I think that's a curious thing. A lot of people often in life say, well, I don't know what I want yet because yeah. The, the world is unknown. So I don't know what I want. However, I do know what I don't want because I've already tried that. Sure. Right. So by then, I think that's when you can start building your boundaries and saying, okay, these are things that I don't want to tolerate anymore. But you're right. I think we need also at least an idea or an intention of what we do want. And I think it should be a want for a feeling to feel X, Y, Z, whatever these feelings are, rather than a want for actual material things, you know, like wanting success or wanting, you know, things that are external to us. I think what we want, we should know what we want in terms of like, I want to feel this. I want to feel fulfilled. You know, I want to feel hmm. a certain way. And I don't think we spend enough time doing that because especially I think in 2020, we have been spending our time expelling things, you know, just like the toxic stuff that we're talking about, just like detoxing, removing, things away from, from our understanding rather than thinking like, why is this toxic or which parts is toxic and mm. which parts do I want to keep? Which parts do I want to remove? Because ultimately I want to feel like whatever your North star is that you like aspire to be and who do you want to be and what kind of world do you want to live in? And I don't think we think enough about that. I agree with you. Yeah, I, I would yes, and the the idea that the goal should be around feelings. I, I would say state, 
which is like a mixture of feelings and thought patterns and behaviors. And like, who, who would I be if my goals clicked in? And that's actually the goal. But yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think a lot of people will say, well, I don't know what I want. The world is changing as a cover up for something like that's a symptom. And what's actually going on in my experience is that people, I think most things boil down to people not feeling safe. So safety and permission are very key foundational elements to my work. And what I realize is that old self fights for survival, even if it doesn't actually serve the person anymore, maybe it never served the person, but people fight for the familiar internally. And so a big part of what I do is work on creating safe state internally because transformation can be really confronting. So when people say, oh, I don't know what I want, it's usually something is saying it would hurt too much to know what I wanted and not feel able to go get it. I tried in the past, it didn't work. So now, oh, I just don't know. And because my experience has been as soon as we create a space where people feel safe to voice and to to even dare to dream that what they want might be accessible, the, the floodgates open and they know exactly what they want but it's just under the surface because it doesn't feel safe and there's no permission internally. Yeah, I think that those two go hand in hand because I think if you only have one and not the other, then you can't really complete the the journey that you're on because you know being in a safe place, but not having permission to leave the place of, of safety, then you're kind of confined in your safe space that you've created for yourself, right? Sure. And it's this little igloo bubble that we're you know making for ourselves. And I think that's what we're, getting into now with, you know, the pandemic and everyone's in their own bubbles and like they're finding a refuge right now, you know, a a safe place, but you have no permission to be free in your safe space. What's also what part of our, what part of us are we making safe? Yeah. Right. So if I'm protecting my fears, this is why it's really important again, to have goals that are moving forward to what we actually want, as opposed to in response to what we don't want, because if we're making sure the fears don't come up. Like, I don't, I don't want to get, and people often misuse this word, but I'll misuse it. I don't want to get triggered. I don't want to get upset, right? I think trigger and upset are different, but then what people are doing is building a situation where their fears are protected, not themselves, not their strongest self, but their fears. And yeah, that can be really tough, but it, it, I don't know whether it's appropriate to bring this up, but what was coming up is you were talking about that was sexuality and a big thing around consent, right? When we speak with, with women and the right to say no is usually around sex. Yeah. And, and what I think is fascinating and that often doesn't get spoken about is women love sex when it's set up well, mm-hmm. right? Where they feel safe and they have permission to be expressive and actually enjoy that like women are very sexual creatures. And, and so it doesn't take much to create the conditions inside of which those, those, those things are present, safety and permission and joy and, and passion. And, and yet, because the conversation very rarely gets to women getting to talk about how much they, they enjoy sex when it's appropriate, it's almost turned into this thing where it's like, did she let you do this? Right, exactly. Right. And as opposed to, was she 
begging for you to do this with her in that moment now demanding that you took her now or that she took you now or however it is um and and so i think it's like all of these ideas of like the whole like alpha beta thing that i was talking about before it's so that these guys can get laid often is what it seems like to me and the illusion is that women need an alpha man to feel safe, I guess. But that actually speaking to women want to feel safe. Yeah. Women want to feel seen and held and, and cared for. <laughs> I think just as men do, right? Might, might be in slightly different ways, maybe. But um, yeah. So anyway, that was coming to mind. And it's the same thing with goals. Like it's all there, right? Okay. People want to be able to be living a life that lights them up <laughs> and turns them on. And often, again, just don't feel safety or permission. So shut off. I think, I mean, right now dating, I think there is this new school of fuckboys that's in their- I've heard the term, I don't really know what it means. Like fuckboys? I think it's just like guys who just go and try to fuck people. Basically, like you said, it's the same concept of, I mean, it's forever been the concept of guys finding women that will get them laid. You know, that's always the, 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 the mission of the night, let's say, right? So that's- that's just a new school version. And I remember going out thinking, okay, I guess I'm supposed to go pick up. Yeah. I was terrible at it. Exactly. Like, that mainly because like- I just quit playing. It was, it was like, nah, this isn't fun. Women are fun. Sex is fun. But the, the, this like the weird game. like numbers game too. Like when I look at like the little bit that I've looked at pickup culture, it just feels like this gross numbers game. And for me, like I've had a really great sex life. And it's because... I actually drop in and connect with the women that I'm connecting with and, and see where she's at and see where I'm at. And we find some intersecting moment. And yeah. So sometimes it can be like two weeks of bliss. Sometimes it can be like months or years, whatever's on, on tap. But yeah, it just feels like people who are obsessed about sex, but doing it badly. Yes. And I think it's more of a desire for control because for whatever reason, that's what they, they feel like they need in that way. And I think that's when Again, they... I think it's a symptom. I think it's yeah. just all fear and insecurity. What they want is connection. Maybe I'm projecting, but I, I but absolutely yeah, I get... agree. Yeah. yeah. And so what I think it's really strange. This is what I've been experiencing that when men pursue me, it's they're looking for an understanding of my consciousness. So if I'm borderline unconscious, you know, maybe I've been drinking a lot, then there's a level of desire in being like, oh, she's probably going to let me do whatever I want kind of thing, you know, and then there's a desire for that. On the flip side, if people can't see how snarling, <laughs> yeah. like my, my lip went up. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. On the, on the flip side, if I'm too conscious or like, you know, I'm completely sober, I'm too conscious at this state, the, this is the nouveau fuckboy scenario where they will try to engage in an emotional conversation with me to emotionally manipulate me or emotionally fuck me in this way so that I feel safe and connected to them. Mm. And again, the ultimate desire is that, oh, she's going to feel open and, and safe with me and allow me to do again, whatever I want to do with her body. And I see that it's almost a trade-off. It's like, oh, I spent two hours like emotionally warming her up so that she'll let me do anything to her body. Or, you know, let's, physically lube her up with alcohol so that it can do anything with her body. So that's what I've been noticing recently of it's, it's about consciousness level of control, because then now anything that I say is, 
is there's less pull in that sense, you know, and then there's less judgment because either I'm unconscious or I'm consciously manipulated in some aspect. Uh, I mean, I've, I've had conversations with people who said that they've never had sober sex and it sort of breaks my heart. I haven't drank in years um, for a bunch of reasons, but like even, even when I did, I rarely would engage sexually, even with partners like while hammered. And I think that makes it really dangerous, especially in dating because people start by going for a drink or something, right? Like hopefully it's now coffee, but usually it's, you know, you go to a bar and you have a drink and you try to see the connection. And obviously the alcohol is going to help create a connection or something, Maybe. Or, yeah. you know, just kind of like loosen up the nerves or whatever. And so I understand that people re- resort to that to kind of deal with the nerves, but then everything continues to get blurry, you know, with alcohol. And I think we are so reliant on that dating scene that sober sex seems weird, which it shouldn't be like, that's when you actually have the most intention and you are free to talk about consent and talk about what actually matters to you and, you know, how you want to connect with the other person instead of, oh, who's in charge. And I think I've recently had a lot of pushback with men when I know exactly what I want in the bedroom and I want it to look like this and I want to do all these things. And suddenly I think with men, it's like, well, I've always been the one that always gets to decide how things are. And I, and she lets me do it. All of a sudden you're kind of wanting to participate in the strategy of what we're going to do tonight. Suddenly there's a new fear and then a new desire for control. And I think a lot of men have resorted to using some kind of emotional manipulative control, which women used to use a lot. And I think women are actually finally taking access in just communicating more. And then it's more now the problem with intentions where someone is saying something they don't mean just so that they can get something out of it. I think there's good things on both sides. I think that men are exhibiting traits that were more traditionally seen from women and vice versa. Women are showing traits that were more traditionally seen by men. Um, and I think there's traits like positives on both sides, but there's also negatives on both sides. And I feel like I'm seeing a lot of women who have the same sort of stressors that traditionally just men had from working too much, wearing themselves out. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's a series of illnesses that are coming out that women are getting that used to just be things that men had. And, and men are starting to also do things that were sort of the shadier, more toxic side of the feminine. And yeah, it's, it's just, it's a whole bunch of wounded people, um, which, is, which is sad. Just looking at what would it take to actually have what we wanted? And because most people aren't operating from that point, from, from that direction, there's a, how do I avoid not having something bad happen? as the driver. And, and so, yeah, round and round we go where um, men don't want to feel weak. They don't want to feel rejected. And because they don't know how to say that out loud, they're trying to put on this false face of bravado. And like, it's, it's interesting. Like men want to feel powerful, but there's ways to feel powerful with having a very engaged woman sexually. And, and it's, it's also interesting how some of 
like a lot of powerful men will enjoy things like being like having a dominatrix in their life. And I was always like sort of perplexed by this. And I, I went to some presentation and some people on stage went through a subdom thing and they were fully dressed. It was, but it was like the person who was in the dom side, it was actually two women who played it out, but the dom person was a very strong person that I knew and they were able to relax and, and be okay. They weren't made to feel small. Like whenever, I don't know, I saw the first um, 50 shades movie, but <laughs> often when I'd, I'd hear about these things, it felt like making the person feel like dirt in the subway. Yeah. But what these people demonstrated was the Dom making the sub feel like they were being wonderful by releasing and letting go and relaxing. And when I've had the experience of being with a lover who made me feel powerful by relaxing into what she wanted to do, uh, it was a delight. And so, so often that I think is what space holding is about, right? For a woman who wants to take her man on a journey, uh, realizing again, that all of that other stuff is a symptom of feeling unsafe. So how do you create safety for a guy to be able to relax into that state and be taken on a journey? Because uh, that can be delightful, right? Once safety is there. And um, yeah, it's the same thing on both sides. It's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I had a conversation with a friend of mine who was on my podcast a while back. And we, we, once we finished the podcast, we kept talking. Yeah. And one of the things that we were talking about was how a lot of the magazine articles that you might see, I mean, in my case, um, like at the dentist office or something, and it would talk about like 50 ways or five ways, 10 ways, whatever, to get your man, yeah. right? And, and then you'd see the men's magazines and be the same thing, like five ways to get the woman, right? And... What we landed in, this guy and I, was you don't owe me your body and I don't owe you my heart. And it's almost the same thing, right? And so women who talk about why aren't men more vulnerable? So, well, maybe they don't feel safe, right? So if you view it as like the, the same sort of statement is like, why won't she just open her legs? Well, maybe she doesn't feel safe. My experience is that when women feel safe, they love opening their legs. And that when men feel safe, they love opening their hearts. And again, for years, I've had really deep, meaningful conversations with men who, once they're finished sharing, will say, wow, I've never shared that with anyone before in my life. And they're doing it sometimes in front of 20 strangers, 30, 40, 50 strangers, sometimes just me. But um, I think it's a similar thing. So I think both men and women could drop into some softness because we're all presenting. I mean, we're not all, and now I'm speaking generalities, but a lot of people are presenting as tough because we don't want the world to know how hurt we might feel internally. And even the toughest among us have stuff inside. And when we can view the other person, a friend of mine has this term, I don't know if he made it up or not, but the, the tender edge of your vulnerability. If people, if you treat people like they're at the tender edge of their vulnerability, that whatever they're sharing is, is their current capacity of sharing right? Then all of a sudden I'm able to show up with a lot more compassion when I see people that way. And yeah, I find that all of a sudden everyone starts getting what they want. And again, when I go first, right, it doesn't always feel good to have to be the strong one all the time, but again, that might just be it. Like you were saying with, uh, I think you said it was, it was your nephews. 
it's not fair, right? There's a part of me that screams, it's not fair. Why do I have to be the strong one all the time? Just because I'm really tall and large and I sound like this doesn't mean that I have it together all the time. And so there's definitely been a part of me. But I remember I, I was complaining to my dad, I think about my mom, <laughs> like they split up when I was four. Like, and I was saying, why is it that I, f- I always feel like I have to be the adult in the conversation? I could have been complaining to her about him mm-hmm. at that point in my life. Now they both stepped up huge since then. This was, I mean, I don't know, a while ago. But yeah, I was like, why do I always have to be the adult? And my father said, you're an adult, which means that you are the adult in every conversation you have for the rest of your life. Fair or not, that was a much more powerful place to come from than where I was coming from before. And so do I want to be the one who goes first all the time? Well, no, of course. There's a part of me that wishes other people would do it, right? And sometimes they do. Great. But um, but when I normalize, I go first. Things go better for me. And it just it sort of releases a whole bunch. I did it at university. I, I dropped out of school and then went back in my late 20s. And I told everyone in my classes, it's like, I'm going to put my hand up Every time the teacher asks anything, and if you're tired of hearing my voice, you get to put your hand up. Otherwise, I'll keep doing it because I hated the awkwardness of the teacher asking a question and everyone just sitting there silently, right? It's like, I'm not paying for for this awkwardness. So participate or I will. (laughs) And maybe that sounds threatening. I said it a little nicer than I think, but (laughs) but it it was like, I'll go first, right? But I'm happy to listen if you want to go first. Right? And the teachers started to realize that, okay, I put my hand up and they w- wait a minute and let other people do that. And then, so they'd pick on me sometimes, they'd choose me sometimes and then choose other people. And it, it went really well. But that's my view of, I'll go first, but I don't have to dominate the space. Yeah, that's very different mm-hmm. from like, you know, needing to fully control the situation versus just being the first one to open the discussion. And I think we go back to that idea of you need to know what you want. You need to know, like, you don't like awkwardness in conversations. You want it to keep going. You want the room to make sense. So it makes sense that you want to begin by raising your hand in context, like in contrast, I mean, so I want to dig a little bit deeper into that idea of strength of being, you know, like the first one that kind of begins everything. I think, unfortunately, in Hollywood and traditional media, the concept of strength has always been physical like muscles, like physical strength and superheroes and, you know, being able to do everything kind of concept to the hero mentality of, of strength. And I've noticed that with the women's empowerment movement, women have tried to mimic that strength by, yeah. you know, Wonder Woman, you know, having the same physical strength or physical attributes of strength to match the male conception of strength. I feel, but, I feel that Wonder Woman is one of the like better ones in the sense of having still some feminine qualities. Yes. But looking at like Ripley, looking at Sarah Connors, looking at GI Jane, like all these shaved head, like military, very masculine, like the role could have been played by a man. You wouldn't tell the difference that much. (laughs) Yeah. Whereas I think feminine strength comes in resilience, comes in her tolerance of pain, you know, that is true strength in a woman's perspective, rather than trying to be like a man, you know? And I think whether or not you're, you identify as a male or female at this point, everyone believes that 
being like the man, you know, is ultimate power, ultimate strength. And whatever those characteristics are, I feel like those are very dangerous because it's like whoever maintains control or has authority or, you know, commands the room or whatever. But when you do that, you end up isolating everybody else in the room. You know, you end up removing the whole human aspect of any connection if it becomes all about you and dominating the whole space. Yeah, yeah I think one of the strengths in, in women traditionally will be good in groups, right? Now, I think that there's a lot of nastiness that women can display with each other. But often you'll see women do what I've heard referred to as like beadwork, small little like putting beads on a string, like work together and, and having that patience and calm and nurturing for each other. And there were some beautiful discussions that I, I've seen online about what you're describing there with essentially women playing male roles and seeing that as a plus as opposed to celebrating strong women. Yeah, anyway, the, I, I just think that people are operating inside of models that that hurt them. And it's the, the masculine, feminine, all this stuff, it, it comes from just aiming at the wrong things, right? right? If people got clear about what they wanted, like I got this from Brian Tracy. He said, unhappy and unsuccessful people think of two things. And then happy and successful people think of a different set of two things. And it breaks down as simple as this. Unhappy, unsuccessful people are thinking, what don't I like and whose fault is it? Mm-hmm. So I don't like the state of the world. Why is it this way? Is what don't I like, whose fault is it? The, the sort of twist that I was in, because I'd done all this work at that point when I first read this, was I would look at what, what I didn't like and blame myself and call it responsibility. Yeah. Right. It's a very different thing than being accountable is blaming myself. Right. So yeah, that was everywhere in my life. I was like, oh, well, if those ingredients are only going to bring unhappy and unsuccessful, well, then I need to look at the second model. So happy, successful people think, what do I want? How do I get it? That's it. So you get to see, oh, I don't like this. And then I'm responsible. So what do I want? How do I get it? Right? Like that's the sequence. So you can notice what you don't like. Like you said, a lot of people say, oh, I don't know what I want. All I can see is what I don't like. Great. What don't I like? (laughs) What do I want? How do I get it? So the, what do I want might be, I want to know what I want. Well, how do I get that? Maybe I make a list. Like it it can be as, as simplified as you need in the moment, but that's the only way that, that we can move forward. And so like my grand vision for the world is for people to be operating from that paradigm and for as a species us to figure out what do we want and then how do we get it? So I'm sort of building a model for that and uh, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. I think I'm also in that same space of trying to get the world to think that way as well. I Mm. think a lot of the work I do is business coaching for female entrepreneurs and they're always afraid to start their business, just fear of failure in general. And it's like, what if, what if, what if fear of the unknown? And that's what stops them from, you know, taking the first step. And, you know, if you move away from that idea of all of the things against you and all the things to blame and that the world looks like this, instead, just focus on the pursuit of what can come out of this and have that more opportunistic point of view. Like you said, with the happy and successful people, there's, there's no space to think about the lack because you're spending all of your energy thinking of the, what if to come like the good to come out of it, which should be the, what should be motivating you. I think we're so used to like, well, I need to lose 10 pounds instead of no, I want to be healthy. It's a very different, such a different thing mentality. 
right? And then by being healthy, you just naturally will lose weight. It's just part of it. But if you only focus on what's missing or what needs to go, then you're always going to be bringing yourself down, thinking of all the things that need to go. We'll just be disappointed all the time. Exactly. And then that leads us to not liking ourselves. And we don't cross the street for people we don't like, right? Most (laughs) we might wave and keep walking. Exactly. And so like, it's, it's so important to, to drop into liking ourselves. I used to hate my body. I was born with a concave chest. I was the oldest person in Canada to have it corrected. I think that record's been shattered, but normally it was done on eight-year-olds, the surgery that I had and I was 22. And it's so interesting. So much of my motivation was to try to fix myself, to not look horrible. And like, I hated my body. And, and I have a body that people have literally come up to me and said, wow, if I was built like you, I'd feel like a superhero all the time. And yet in my mind, I was like some grotesque that, that needed to be avoided. But it, it took me a long time to, to wrap around the, um, the feeling of how good could I feel in my body, right? What, what performance can I, can I train up as opposed to don't look horrific? Because <laughs> like don't look horrific would get me to work out <laughs> to like pain levels, look okay, and then lose all my motivation because my only goal was to not look horrific. Yeah. Right. And so all of a sudden I would stop working out and then start looking air quote horrific again. And, um, and ran and ran, I went. So yeah, I think it's so important what you're talking about and, uh, aiming forward. And like you said, when, when doing that, there isn't space for all the other noise. Uh, Beautiful. I think, um, yeah, if we continue on in that punishment mentality, you know, I think I did that for a long time thinking, oh, I want to look this way or I want to be this type of person. And I would always punish myself for not doing it, which would then drive me to try harder. And at a past time in my life, that was a strength for me until I realized how much it was also breaking me in the process to then, you know, start realizing you got to be kinder to yourself. So I want to wrap up with a couple questions. The first one is, what, I mean, we've already covered a lot of this, but what is the main misconception about masculinity that you wish can be erased? That it looks any particular way. Yeah. I often say in the men's group, we're all men here. Now what? What kind of man do you want to be? Okay. And so, yeah, there, there's an open inquiry. And yeah, I can have some ideas of king, warrior, magician, lover, but what kind of king do you want to be? What kind of warrior? What kind of magician? What kind of lover? Like, there's a lot of variance. And so, yeah, I would, um, yeah, that it looks any one particular way. Yeah, I think that'd be truly liberating to just Mm. not have that definition. My second question is, out of your female friends that you know of, what negative thoughts do they have about themselves that you wish could change? Yeah, I'm unlovable. I think it it, it stems from a bunch of that. Like, I need to be a certain way to be loved, but it all comes down to like, I'm unlovable. If I, if I don't behave this way, if I say no, he won't love me. If I say yes too fast, he won't love me. If I ask for what I want, like he, she, they won't love me. So yeah, that, that like, I'm not good enough. I don't have permission. Like when I talk about permission, right? Like do you have the permission to be loved? Do you have the permission to be wealthy? Do you have the permission to be powerful? But the, the core of all that is the permission to be and I think that um, that's that's a wound that I think a lot of people carry, but a lot of women carry. That is a gigantic one. I love that. I usually get, um, you know, that you don't have to care so much about your appearance or you don't have to like sexualize yourself. And I think that's so surface level, but you know, the unlovable context yeah. is 
is huge, you know. And my whole thing is like I want to live in a world where everyone is firmly on their path and actively leveling up to their full yes life. And so like I talk about games a lot, life's a game and what are your rules and that sort of thing. And so like if someone wants to look a certain way, I don't care. Go, like do it. Like I care in the sense that I want people to be doing what they want to be doing. I might not like it. Like I don't care about curling, but I'm thrilled if someone wants to be an excellent curler or if they just like it. Right. Like, so the, the idea about you don't have to look a certain way. Well, you don't but like do your thing. <laughs> like you are lovable as you are now choose who do you want to be? Right. Similar to like you're a man. Now what? It's like you're lovable. Now what? Yeah. What and that's choose from there. A truly powerful thing. Once you realize yeah. that you are lovable and you've always yeah. been huge. And my last question for you is, I mean, we've talked about a lot of things, both online and offline. So what topics jump out at you the most that you would like to invite another man to elaborate on further in another episode? I mean, yeah, so much of my focus is, is where do we take humanity forward? Right? Whether that's a masculine thing, feminine thing, I think it takes all of us, but so much of, of where my curiosity is right now is I don't see a lot of vision for what we want the world to be. I see a lot of complaining for what we yes. don't want it to be. And so, um, yeah, what I want to hear more people talking about is how do we create a space for visioning and then actioning, um, whether that's, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a huge gap in the, in the world right now, because it has been for a long time, been just pointing fingers and who's to blame and just moving the fingers at different people and different things. No one's leading with intention for whatever that vision is. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Amazing. This has been so great. Thank you so much for this chat. I think, I mean, I could talk to you forever. It's ridiculous. So I think we could just like jump around and talk forever. I think the idea that people say they don't know what they want because they don't feel safe in asking for it was really interesting. Do you agree with this idea that without permission to speak, we'll just shut off? I still can't believe how much men thought it was absolutely insane to tell a woman about their troubles. Like that would be the craziest idea. What do you think? Make sure to subscribe. And if you'd like to be on the show or know of someone with a unique perspective, slide into my DMs at Miss Amanda Chen on Instagram. And I'll see you next Wednesday with more episodes of The 100 Masked Men.